1: Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin.
2: Join me now for a conversation with Gordon Neal, Vice President of Corporate Development for Silvercorp Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVMLF and on the TSX as SVM. Silvercore is a low-cost silver-producing Canadian mining company with multiple mines in China. The company recently commenced commercial production at its GC project in southern China. The company's vision is to deliver shareholder value by focusing on the acquisition of underdeveloped projects with resource potential and the ability to grow organically. Gordon, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. If you wouldn't mind, please give our listeners new to the program an overview of Silvercore Metals.
3: The company is a Canadian company run by Canadian management, but it has its main assets are in China. It has two operating mines, one in the Ying District and one in Guangdong Province. The Ying mines are the primary producers. The GC mine in the Guangdong Province is a new production facility for us, opened in 2014. We have one other gold mine in the Henan Province, but it's on care and maintenance right now. We're thinking about opening that up again because of the gold price.
2: What do you speculate that the cost of gold per ounce would be if and when you produce?
3: If I remember correctly, it was around $800 an ounce.
2: And you have a negative $5 per ounce cost for producing silver, isn't that right?
3: Yes, we do. Actually, I've looked at it, and it looks like we're the lowest cost producer in the silver space right now. And that's for this quarter was negative $5.48. Now, that's net of byproduct credits. And if you look at the cost, we've got a lot of lead and zinc in our ore. And the lead and zinc price has gone up significantly, as you know, the last... Three or four months, that's contributed greatly to our bottom line.
2: Now, I know you're primarily a silver producer, but that lead and zinc is extremely significant considering how important not only Chinese infrastructure is, but North American growth as well.
3: Yeah, that's true. All of our production is actually absorbed in China. So even with the slowdown in the Chinese economy, they're still using quite a bit of lead and zinc. So if you look at the LME spot prices compared to the SME spot price, you'll see that lead and zinc actually trade higher in the Shanghai Exchange than on the London Exchange. So that's also contributed to our success. Our metal mix for the quarter was 48% silver, 33% lead, 10% zinc, and about 2% gold.
2: Now, the market has in recent days responded favorably, and I may be making a forward-looking statement here. The market has been positive with regard to Silvercore, and potentially you feel that there is quite a bit of upside in the stock with a near $5 Canadian share price.
3: Yeah, the company hadn't marketed itself for quite a while. I mean, there was a downturn in the metal space. The company had some issues with the short seller years ago, and it, it's gotten by those issues now and brought me on board to help with the marketing. When you are the lowest cost producer in the space and you've got the highest gross margin, there is a China discount that I'm finding in this company where there are some North American, not so much European, that still find China a mystery. So you get a bit of a discount there, but just telling the story about the record results we had last quarter seems to have gotten the market excited. And I do think that there's still more upside because we've got more news coming. We've got more catalysts coming where we drilled 225,000 meters underground and tunneled 128,000 meters over the last three years, and they're going to go into a 43-101 reserve report that's coming out in the next couple of weeks. So that'll increase our reserves. will have effect on our head grade. We hope it'll push it up and should affect positively our net present value.
2: You and I can speculate all we want about the price of silver, the metal, but what are your thoughts?
3: You know, it's a funny thing. I usually don't speculate on price, but I've been through a few cycles, so I will say this. Some of the people that I respect well in this business, the Sprouts and the Rules, have been very bullish on silver in the last quarter. What I find is when the market decides that it wants something to happen with the metal price, unless serious fundamentals get in the way of that, the market usually follows its own nose. So I have to say that I'm usually fairly, not agnostic, but neutral, but I'm getting the feeling in the sense that the gold-silver ratio is going to contract so that it pushes silver price up, and the people that are in the know who who actually spend a lot of time I'm technically looking at silver are saying that the silver price should reach new highs this year.
2: Gordon, it's been a pleasure speaking with you again today. Thank you so much for joining me on the program.
3: Great thanks Ellis.
2: I've been speaking with Gordon Neal, vice President of Corporate Development for SilverCorp Metals trading in the US as SVMLF and on the TSX as SBM. listen to the segment again on our website ellismartreport.com.
1: Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis
2: Martin. Join me for a conversation with Ken Berry, the president and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining Corporation, trading in the U.S. as NHVCF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as NEE. Northern Vertex Mining Corporation is actively engaged in the development of its flagship Moss Mine Gold Silver Project located in the historic Oatman Mining District in Northwest Arizona. Over the past six years, the company has worked diligently to establish a substantial gold-silver resource and is now focused on advancing the project to commercial mine construction and future gold-silver production. Ken, welcome back to the program. If you wouldn't mind, please give our audience a brief overview of the Northern Vertex story.
4: Our story is really about the moss mine in Arizona and Northern Vertex has been successful since 2011 at proving up a resource. We've drilled over 470 drill holes on this property. All up in total there's probably close to I think 750 or 800 drill holes on this resource. We've established a feasibility. We've conducted a test mining pilot plant that produced 4,000 ounces of gold and 20,000 ounces of silver. We completed a feasibility which demonstrated very robust numbers. We've got a 48% internal rate of return after tax, so that's exceptional for a mining property. And we also have an all-in sustaining cost of $662 per ounce. So what that says is if gold were to pull back from its current levels, even down to $1,000, we have a very strong project that would continue to push forward. If gold were to move in the 1500 or above, then, of course, the internal rate of return would climb as well. So all in all, we've got a strong project. It's under-consuming construction. We're also conducting additional exploration, so we've been quite happy with the progress to date.
2: And you're scheduled to go into production in the fall of 2017, this year, correct?
4: That's correct. Construction's underway now. We've got Dagerstorm doing the earthworks. We've got Golden Associates looking at the heap leach pad, and we've got a number of other groups. M3, who is our engineering group, M3 is a very strong engineering group, has been one of the leaders in the heap leach projects in North America, so we're happy to have a complete team behind us, and it's led by Dr. David Stone, who is our project construction manager for Northern Vertex.
2: Becoming a producing mine in the U.S. is no small feat, and in Arizona with the moss mine and Northern Vertex, we're almost there.
4: Well, we're one of the few companies that, since 2011, has really taken a project forward and advanced it to that doorstep of production. And we're very pleased with the progress. When others were shutting down and idle, we were raising capital and funding this project and moving it forward. We're really pleased with the way things have unfolded here for Northern Veritech.
2: It's been relatively inexpensive to build out this mine.
4: Well, in terms of a mining project, our capital expenditures are approximately $33 million. So this is on the lower end for a mining project. We've invested over the last four or five years. Well, the company has raised over $52 million to date now. In terms of mining, it's not a large project, but it's very manageable and stands to be very profitable.
2: Tell me about the permitting process in northwestern Arizona.
4: Ellis, the permitting process for Northern Vertex was accomplished for the test mining facility, and we did that in just over about seven months. We were very happy with the process. We worked well with the regulatory agencies, and now for the phase two commercial mining, we've been successful at receiving pretty much all our permits. We have them in hand right now. There's a number of permits dating back to sort of a renewal of the test mining, so to speak, but most recently we had our air quality public hearing, and it went through very smoothly. We received our approval the next day we moved on to the stormwater prevention plan and the aquifer protection permit is one that we just put up our bond in the last few days for 1.4 million dollars so all in all we've got our permits in hand and we're very happy with the procedures and the process
2: let's talk about the contribution you're making locally by providing jobs
4: Well, the town of Bullhead City has a population of about 35,000 people, and our mine site is located just 20 minutes to the east, and this is unusual for a mining project to be located near a source of talented people that can step in and work with the company, and what's unique as well is our employees will be able to go home and sleep in their homes and be with their families each night, and this is something that really helps out with the retention of your employees. Mining projects often are in remote areas, and the employees are away from the their families and it's very stressful on them. In addition, we're just an hour and a half south of Las Vegas and about three and a half hours west of Phoenix. So in terms of inventory, we don't have to carry large collection of inventory that can often amount to 10 or 15 million dollars worth of equipment sitting idle so we can have access to this inventory. As an example, our crushers and our conveyors, those orders have been placed and the manufacturing of that equipment is underway right now with a group called Goodfellow, which is only one hour north of us and about 30 minutes from Las Vegas. So we have easy access to the manufacturers and equipment suppliers. So we're pretty pleased about that. And that's a key reason why our capital expenditures are at that $33 million level and not much higher.
2: What's the share structure of Northern Vertex as we look at this As a potential investment value,
4: we have approximately 100 million shares outstanding. We've raised in excess of about 52 million dollars for the company. Many of our shareholders participated at higher levels through the development process in a challenging market. We had done approximately 23 million dollars worth of financings between a dollar 15 and a dollar 25. We're currently sitting in around 40 to 50 cents, and we think it's a tremendous opportunity for a company that has gone through the process of developing and is right on that doorstep of production, and that's often where you see a lift in the valuation of a company. So we're pretty pleased with where we're at, and we think this is a tremendous opportunity.
2: I've been speaking with Ken Berry, the president and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining Corporation, trading in the U.S. as NHVCF, and on the TSX Venture Exchange as NEE. Listen to the segment again on our website, EllisMarketReport.com and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on TuneIn Radio
1: or iTunes. Resource stocks, gold, silver, rare earth elements, oil and gas stocks. Learn about them by going to our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a discussion with James McDonald, President and
2: CEO of Kootenay Silver. Kootenay Silver trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol KTN. Kootenay is a Canadian and Mexican-based silver exploration company actively engaged in the development of three major projects in Mexico, including the La Cigarra Silver Project in Chihuahua, Mexico, and the Promontorio and La Negra Silver Projects in Sonora State, Mexico. The company has a leading growth profile, highlighted by one of the largest silver asset bases in Mexico, and it carried interest to commercial production with a world-leading mining partner. Kootenay Silver currently has two drill programs and progress in Mexico and a combined 43-101 silver asset base of over 140 million ounces of contained silver. Forward-looking statements may be included going forward. Jim, welcome back to the program. Thanks,
5: Alice. Glad to be here.
2: Give us a brief overview of the company, please.
5: Sydney Silver, junior explorer, developer of silver assets focused in uh, Mexico primarily. Two flagship projects, really. Lenegro, which is two different deposits on it, Toyo deposit. And then Lonega, which is being worked on, does not yet have a resource calculation. Then we have the La Cigara deposit and property. In the Peral District of Chihuahua State, that has 52.5 million ounces measured indicate, another 11.5 million ounces of inferred silver resource there, wide open to expansion. And then on the Promontory Project, we have on the Promontory Deposit, 92 million ounces of silver equivalent in measured indicated category. And La Negra Discovery being drilled by our partner Pan American Silver, who we optioned project to last year, giving us a pathway to production with a 25% carried interest to production as they earn in. With La Cigarra deposit in Chihuahua State, we've owned 100%. We're operating that project. Both projects moving ahead parallel here with lots of drilling coming up this year and lots of other work, yeah, exciting work.
2: You have very encouraging high-grade intercepts from the drill program at La Negra that you just referenced through your partner, Pan American Silver. Let's talk about those. They're quite exciting.
5: Yeah, and there was 13 more holes from the drill program that Pan American finished up at the end of last year, confirming the previous drilling that they did earlier in the season. Yeah, a number of really good grading intercepts there. The deposits still open to depth. Where to put out a news release here shortly on the plans that Pan American has for the project in 2017. So it continues to look very exciting for the Promotorio La Negra project coming into this current season. Of course, we're looking forward to more results from it.
2: Well, we all know that grade is very important and it's been your dictate to seek those grades. That figures prominently when you consider the potential investment opportunities with your company. Let's talk about that and your accomplishments in doing exactly what you set out to do.
5: Here over the last 12 months was very busy for Kootenai. We struck the deal with Pan American that gave us that carried production interest on the Promontory and La Negra property. Their interest was driven from the La Negra discovery that we made, which has the potential to be a low-cost open pit operation, and returned some very excellent grades, quite significant widths and tens of meters of 200 plus gram type silver numbers coming out of there into the kilogram per ton range as well. Some Real spectacular grades there, and of course that improves any potential profits. That's a, you know, grade is king in the business. The other thing we did: this market is turning and probably made its hit its bottom and started to turn a year ago. Talking about the silver and gold market, of course, and and we purchased another asset the acquisition of North Air Silver one year ago and picked up the uh, La Segura deposit, which sits in the Peral district of Chihuahua there, one of the biggest producers in Mexico of silver, a major mining camp there. We picked up this 18,000-hectare land package called La Segura with a really nice deposit that comes right to surface potentially amenable to open pit mining, open in all directions, multiple targets there that are under-drilled or undrilled completely. And in this historic district that's produced to the primary mining areas, produced over 900 million ounces of silver, lying just five kilometers south of our property boundaries. So very prospective ground. We believe that that reserve is going to get much bigger. And we've done some recent work that indicates that uh, we may be able to improve the economics of what we currently have. We're moving towards two things, making that deposit bigger at the same time doing work that will go into a preliminary economic assessment and eventually pre-feasibility and on.
2: Given all that you've just discussed, potentially it might be a good time to take a look at Kootenay Silver as an investment opportunity as we continue our excitement about the silver space.
5: Kootenay Silver offers really good exposure to silver really good leverage for the silver price. We've got lots of growth opportunities through making these deposits bigger, and you know, our objective is just to drive that program. Let's do more exploration. Let's see how big we can make it. And at the same time, let's do the underlying metallurgical and other work that will go into an economic study to prove at what point that these deposits are going to return a good profit for
2: well, Jim, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to visiting with you in Toronto at PDAC very soon. Thanks for joining me on the program today. We'll
5: see you there, Alex. Thank you very
2: much. I've been speaking with James McDonald, the president and CEO of Kootenay Silver, trading as K O O Y F in the U.S. and K T N on the TSX Venture Exchange. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Dudley Baker, founder and editor of CommonStockWarrants.com, an exclusive database of all stock warrants trading in the U.S. and Canada. Mr. Baker is a newsletter writer and analyst who also covers the resource sector. Dudley, welcome back to the program.
6: Hello, it's great to be here.
2: Now, the last time we spoke, it was probably about two years ago when there was no sign of recovery for the mining sector. And you and I were talking about really collecting a basket of stocks, of companies that could survive the downturn and be positioned for real growth. When that bull market returned, it's returned. And I believe that you've done very well with your strategy. Let's talk about that.
6: I tell you, it's been a great 15 months or so. I sure hope that you got your basket of stocks because my basket of stocks has done incredibly well. So it's been a wonderful time. Before we even hit the bottom, say, in January of 2015, early, early 2016, I was still looking for opportunities. I was still trying to cherry pick and hit the bottom on some of the companies. And we've done rather well as the markets turned. Even here in the month of January was an incredible month for my personal portfolio. And I always say those subscribers of mine that have access, the gold and lifetime subscribe have access to my portfolio. They know everything that I'm doing, what I'm buying, what I'm selling. If they choose to follow me, you know, after they do their own due diligence, that's great. Hopefully a lot of my subscribers to common stock warrants have done rather well. But no, it's an exciting time. I think we're still in the early stages of this, what we'll call a a new bull market here in the resource sector.
2: Would it be safe to say that you've experienced some five to 10 bangers during the last two years?
6: More. We've had at least three in the last six months that have been. Minimum of 1,000, actually one was a 2,000%. And that was something that I came into last June at 16.5 cents and was selling at $3.20 to $3.30. Does that mean I'm smart? Does that mean I'm lucky? I don't know. We all need a little bit of of both to really be successful in this business. We've been really greatly positioned in some interesting plays, whether that's gold companies. So I've got a nice, nearly a 2,000% gain in one that was in the Z light business. And so oil and gas business, my personal portfolio is really kind of diversified. Everybody thinks of me as being the warrant guy, you know, with the common stock warrants. Well, I've got the database of all the warrants that are trading in the U.S. and Canada. And I know most of our listeners are interested in those mining companies that have stock warrants that are trading and they're available to go out and buy. But in addition, only, say, 25 percent of my personal portfolio is in stock warrants on companies that I like. And the rest, 75 percent percent of my portfolio is the common shares and nearly all of those are in the resource sector so it's quite a diversification from some in oil and gas manganese against still and zeolite some different positions that I really feel super about and now I always like to think when I go in or anything that I'm holding I want to say it still has 10 bagger potential meaning a thousand percent gain from here so I guess you could say I'm kind of a greedy guy it's working out really well we've got some great picks in my personal portfolio, in my opinion, that are working out well. A lot of the names that are in my portfolio, you will not see anywhere else from any of the other newsletter writers. I stumble into things in different ways. I do listen to a lot of the other newsletter writers, but I come into some via insider buying, just keeping my eyes and ears open out there to the news. I would never come into a position that the insiders did not have a substantial position. I'd like to see them be buying, but sometimes it's just they got. an to be neutral. If they're selling their stock, why the hell do I want to be buying, right, for me or for my subscribers? I like to have a strong tone from an insider standpoint, obviously quality assets and in good location. I think we've done a good job for years here with the database with the warrants. This is how most people find me in our service, Common Stock Warrant. That is El Primo. It's the only one you'll find where we keep this stuff up to date every day and got some incredible opportunities here in the resource sector with many of the warrants now with, uh, with roughly a three-year life or more and I don't know how you feel Ellis. In my personal view is within this next two to three years there's gonna be some incredible money made in this resource space we can start to see it happening in the last few days gold today as we're recording this ran up to 1245 and that's pretty good silver is just below 18 so we're experiencing some really good moves here probably telling my voice I like to be excited I enjoy what I'm doing and we're leading a lot of subscribers to some really nice gains, so I'm happy.
2: I understand in uh, many cases, warrants might be more exciting than the common stock. Why don't you explain why?
6: Well, it's all about leverage. And to mention one name, my one example where I said about a 20-bagger was on Northern Dynasty. Northern Dynasty is being touted by several of the big players in the business, other newsletter writers. Last summer, Northern Dynasty had a monster project up in Alaska, permitting issues, and that's what made the stock really go, is that they're looking for under the Trump administration, probably relaxation of the permitting with the EPA. And so that project may finally get permitted. When I came in, I was able to pick up those five-year warrants at 16 and 5 cents, just about maybe two weeks after the private placement. I came in at 16 and 5 cents. That's what I sold for between 320 and 330, roughly 20 times my money. I still hold one-third of that position in case it just explodes substantially higher in front of me. It's all about leverage. You would have no doubt made five, six times your money if you'd have bought the common shares, but if you'd have bought the stock warrants, like I did, I know many of my subscribers did, we would have made that two to three times, multiple, and it's about the increased leverage. That's the whole game with stock warrants. There's no mystery to them. It's very simple to understand. Most of the warrants, they're all Canadian, basically, and easily trade on the Canadian exchange. A lot of them do have U.S. symbols that can be traded. But my subscribers, I always let people know you could come to just my learning center, and I give a few of the brokerage firms here in the States that are the best to use if you're looking to trade the Canadian shares and the warrants. With stock warrants, it's easy, and it's all about making more bang for your dollar. They're all gonna cost you a fraction of the price, less than half, maybe one third, 25% of what the common shares would cost you. And if you've got a three to four to five year life, it's that upside leverage that's gonna give you more than twice of the gains that you're gonna get out of the common stock. That's the whole game. Less money on the table, but higher reward at the end of the day when we are proven to be right. And we're right more often than not. Everything in life cannot be a home run. So it's all about dollar allocation and spread your money. If we see something that we don't like, we're prepared to get out in a hurry. We're here to make money, but we're not traders. I want to say we're more longer term investors, meaning a couple of years.
2: You're not traders at all. You look for real value in what you invest in.
6: It was just the the luck of the draw last summer when I went into this one warrant on Northern Dynasty, it had a five-year life. So I had no intention of being selling this in six months. Well, when they drop almost 2,000% gains right in front of you, you got to take some money off the table. And this was big money to be taken off the table. At some time, all this makes sense. But yet knowing full well that I still wanted to retain a uh, core position in those Northern Dynasty uh, B warrants is the ones that I, I was playing. But no, normally, I don't go into a position uh, looking at it with a trader hat on and thinking it's going to double next week or triple next week. And I don't know anybody that's really that good at that game. That's just not what I want to personally be doing. Establish some nice long-term positions and ride this wave up over the next couple of years. We take some money off the table if it's given to us. Otherwise, we'll bank those gains closer to the end.
2: I've been speaking with Dudley Baker. The website is commonstockwarrants.com That's commonstockwarrants.com I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with George Sanders, president of Gold Cliff Resource Corporation trading as GCFFF in the U.S. and GCN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Gold Cliff is a mine development company focused on near-term cash flow by applying the phased production business model to precious metals assets. The company is currently funding engineering and permitting activity on the Pine Grove Nevada Gold Project through a 40% joint venture interest. Mr. Sanders was part of the team that successfully brought the Silvercrest Mine Santa Elena project to fruition as a mine, selling it off to First Majestic Silver. George, welcome back Back to the program. If you wouldn't mind, give our listeners an overview of Goldcliffe Resource Corporation.
7: Goldcliffe Resource Corporation was a uh, long-established exploration company. This spring, we decided to transition from exploration into mine development. We're following the phased production business model, which is a model that I've enjoyed a little success with in another company. Your listeners may be familiar with the Silvercrest Mines, now Silvercrest Mines metal story was part of that team and we were able to utilize that business model and make a lot of money for our shareholders. So in May of this year, we decided in Goldcliffe that we would also focus on that business model and transition away from more traditional pure exploration. And by the midsummer, we had acquired an interest in an advanced stage small gold deposit in Nevada called Pine Grove. We're earning a joint venture interest in that project by spending 1.4 million over three years. That project has had significant development to the point where there has been a resource, most of which is in the measured category, produced. We believe it's capable of supporting a modest open pit heap leach mine, and our activity right now is focused on advancing towards the permitting and project finance documentation required to build that mine. As part of that work, you always want to see if there's going to be some extra gold beyond your resource. That's the reason that we undertook a small drill program from the middle of October to the middle of December. And yesterday we were Pleased to announce some very favorable and encouraging results from that program.
2: Well, let's talk about those results. I understand you've identified intercepts of up to half an ounce of gold per ton.
7: Well, absolutely. The Pine Grove District is known as a historical high grade producer. And when I say historical, I'm talking circa. 1880s to 1900 there was quarter million ounces taken out of the district best as as everybody can determine at an average grade in excess of an ounce bona fide strong high-grade former production while that's not our primary target we're looking at an open pit heat leach here and more conventional bulk tonnage grades the past drilling and sampling has indicated that there still are high grades to be found at Pine Grove and in fact in this recent drilling WL 114 drill hole had a a nice zone in it that included a five-foot interval of just over half an ounce and a separate five-foot interval of 0.6 ounces gold per ton so better than half ounce in that hole and those kinds of results while they're not the target of our drilling are not surprising because that's the nature of the mineralization in the Pine Grove District.
2: For those that have invested in your company during the last year I believe lately they may be pleased in addition to new potential investors in these results and I think we've seen a bit of a reflection of that in the market. The key for
7: any public Development company is you always hope that the share price will give your finance investors a little bit of a lift. That has certainly occurred. We hope we can establish a really solid track record whereby any equity financing in the future is always done at a price that's a little bit of a premium to the past equity financings. That's a good way to attract serial investors. That's our goal though. Although I have to say about the market, Ellis, we're much more focused day to day on project development and advancing the asset And it's our belief that if we do that successfully and meet those milestones, the market, as long as we're communicating regularly, will kind of take care of itself. Well, that's
2: it, isn't it? It's always doing the work in the ground and hopefully the market will perform accordingly.
7: Yeah, our focus is not day to day on the promoting of the stock. Obviously, we try to communicate regularly, but really our focus is advancing the asset. And we'd like to be able, every time we raise money, to go back to those investors couple months later six months later a year later and say to them you gave us this money you trusted us and here's what we've done with it and here's the value that we've delivered so on this last financing that we did at 19 cents and raised a million and a quarter gross Canadian a chunk of that money went into this drill program and the significant of this drill program or the results beyond the couple of high-grade hits is that we've extended mineralization beyond the existing resource. So anybody that looks at Pine Grove or has followed us for a little while knows that the resource is a little bit modest and that's fine. We made money on a similar size resource in my uh, Silvercrest experience. However, Silvercrest was successful because they were able to expand and we believe that Pine Grove will be a success because it will be able to expand. But before you can tell people that in a believable manner, you have to demonstrate it. And that's what we've done. We've shown that the mineralization occurs outside of the existing resource calculation. And in fact, Ellis, it's wide open in that area. The second and equally important thing about that is it occurs in an area where, given the previous resource calculation, this new zone occurs in an area that was designated for pre stripping. In other words, it was designated as waste. So the fact that out there a couple hundred feet to the north, we've hit this new zone, the new zone remains open, all of a sudden that material is material that would be delivered to the crusher and not to the waste ore pile. And that's going to, we think, If we can extend it with further drilling, that is going to result in a reconfiguration of the pit. It's going to result in the reduction of upfront capital for stripping. So, the capital cost estimate on this thing initially a couple years ago was between 25 and 27 million. We think we can do it for about 22 million. But of that 25 to 7 estimate, 2 million included pre stripping on the Wilson deposit. And clearly, we can see just with this program that we won't have to spend that much money pre stripping it because this new stuff occurs within the top 100 feet and up to 50. 55 feet from surface so that's a really really exciting result and we look forward later on in the spring summer to uh, further drilling this new zone well george thanks so much for joining me today on the
2: program always a pleasure ellis thank you i've been speaking with george sanders president of gold cliff resource corporation trading as gcfff in the u.s and gcn on the tsx venture exchange listen to this segment again on our website ellismartinreport.com and go to goldcliff.com for more information on the company. I'm Ellis Martin, joining me now for a conversation with Eric Fear, the president of Silvercrest Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVCMF and on the TSX Venture Exchange's SIL.B. Silvercrest Metals is a Vancouver-based precious metals exploration company that is focused on new discoveries, value-added acquisitions, and targeting production in Mexico's historic precious metals districts. Their Las Chispas mine in Sonora State, Mexico, promises to be a potentially highly prolific play. Eric, welcome back to the program.
8: Ellis, thanks for having me on again. Always a pleasure.
2: Late in 2016, you announced you were beginning the Phase 2 Drill Surface and Underground Drill Program. What's the current status of that?
8: We actually started it in December. We did do some work over the holidays. While everybody else was resting, we were working at Los Chispas. The uh, Phase 2 program is in two parts. Part one is the drill program, which is about between six to 10,000 meters, depending on success this year. And that's both surface and underground drilling. We, so far to date, have completed about 2,000 meters of that. Most of that's the surface. Of that 2,000, there's a couple hundred meters of underground drilling at Bobby Canora currently. Looking for our first result for phase two drilling to come out sometime in February. I don't like to put one or two holes out. We're going to put these things out in five to ten hole kind of batches as they come through, the assays. Drilling is focusing on establishing our maiden resource later this year. Also drill testing the Ballycanora target which historically was the largest producer in the district. This district has laid dormant for the last 75 years and has never been drilled as far as we can tell so we're the first to drill in this district
2: how do we have these historic targets that no one has touched and you're about to find out what's in the ground there
8: Well, it's uh, been the historic industry standard that you drive on grade and you drill for structure. That's what they did historically. The discovery at Las Chispas was made in 1640 by a Spanish general. A lot of unrest with Apaches up until the uh, late 1800s. There was some mining that was done in the district before the late 1800s, and it was driven on grade, nothing else. We found no evidence of any drill collars on surface or underground. Usually you go into these districts and there's a pile of core sitting somewhere. There's no evidence of any of that. So again, drive on grade and drill on structure. They weren't too concerned with structure.
2: What is the second part of that phase two program?
8: The second part of the phase two program, the critical part, is the ongoing underground rehabilitation of approximately 11.5 kilometers of old workings. So we're reestablishing these workings and we're getting critical data geologically and from a potential mineability of high grade underground. The mineralization, as far as we know and from a mineability standpoint, had a historic cutoff grade of somewhere between 500 to 1 kilo of silver. There's quite a bit of material that still remains intact underground in the 300 to 500 grams per ton silver plus gold. We're excited about seeing the results from that from underground and we'll continue probably on a monthly basis to refresh our rehabilitation with new access and some more results as they come out. Not only do we have the underground results coming out but you'll see just more of this underground rehabilitation. This rehabilitation just to remind the general public is exploration rehabilitation. From a mining standpoint there need to be more development. You could actually use a lot of the underground workings right now for that development if you wished. Just keep that in mind. We've considered that there's also quite a bit of lower grade material associated with the underground workings and some wider zones. There may be potential for some bulk lower grade in the future. We'll see how that works out in our design.
2: The lower grades can still be substantial, right?
8: And uniquely, too, most of these districts I've been to around in Mexico in my career, and the dumps and the tailings have usually been scavenged and taken to smelters in the past, and Los Chispas, most of that stuff still remains. So there's quite a bit of high-grade material that's actually just sitting on the surface right now that could be potentially reprocessed in the future.
2: I've been speaking with Eric Fear, the president of Silvercrest Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVCMF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as SIL.B. Listen to this segment again on our website ellismartreport.com or listen to the entire Ellismart Report on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. Once again, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Simon Moores, an analyst at Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, a London-based consultancy and research firm focusing on niche, critical, and industrial minerals and metals. The company analyzes battery-raw materials including graphite, lithium, cobalt, and vanadium. Benchmark also follows major industrial markets, emerging industries, and disruptive technologies such as EV batteries, as well as wind, solar, and fracking issues. Simon, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining me today.
9: Hey, this It's great to be here. Thank you.
2: It's been suggested to me, Simon, that the production of lithium-ion batteries for automobiles, while being economic perhaps for consumers, if you don't include the cost of the vehicles themselves, still higher than the cost of a petroleum-run vehicle these days, it's been suggested that the so-called carbon footprint to produce these batteries and these vehicles is heavier than gasoline-powered vehicles. What are your thoughts?
9: I think the first thing is that electric vehicles are really new. That's the one thing that I think people need to first understand is even though we're used to hybrid vehicles and even some plug-in hybrids and rage extenders, pure electric vehicles are, are very new. So it's a bit harsh, I would say, to judge the standards they are, where they are today with the standards of, sort of gasoline-powered vehicles at present. Um, in terms of battery, the impacts or the CO2 impacts of battery production. It's true, batteries are a relative complex supply chain of lots of minerals and metals like lithium, cobalt, nickel, um, which are heavily processed into their chemical form usually, which then are made into batteries, which then are made into packs and into cars. But I think to compare it to gasoline vehicles fully, you have to break down every component of what is a complex engine, and then make a fair comparison. So everything when you're making a car is relatively complex. I think overall electric vehicles are simpler versions of their gasoline counterparts. You know, these are quite complex vehicles to produce regardless of whether it's an EV or a gasoline vehicle, so I guess the only thing that electric vehicles have in their advantage is that they, as soon as they're on the road, they don't burn uh, gasoline.
2: But what about the potential uh, damage of uh, coal-fired plants that are still being used to produce these batteries? I'm just taking the uh, cause of the environmentalists not necessarily being one of those terms, potentially, but these are some of the things I'm hearing, and these are some of the things I think we need to overcome in the sector.
9: Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends, and that's a good question, for energy storage, battery-powered vehicles, and utility storage. Utility batteries is what are you putting in there to store? Where's that um, energy coming from? Is it from coal-fired power plants? Is it from solar? Is it from wind energy? And that's a really good question. I think overall it's a tough one and a complex one to answer, but overall being able to store energy and becoming more efficient with the way we use it instead of just wasting it. At the moment you generate energy if it's not used, it's wasted. There's no way to store it. So I think the fact you've got energy storage is an overall good thing for the environment. It means we've become more responsible with how we use energy regardless of where it comes from.
2: You mentioned how complex the system's using to uh, construct these batteries, and the batteries themselves and the vehicles. These are early days, let's just say that, even though electric cars have been around for uh, several years and the technology is not necessarily new. These are still early days with regard to evolving technology. Do you expect this method of, of energy storage to become a lot simpler and a lot less complex as time moves on?
9: Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, the battery industry is core to this and the way people make batteries and simplifying those supply chains. Elon Musk said it himself. You can't send these minerals and metals on around the world trips without them being expensive and increasing their CO2 footprint of batteries, which is why you look at a model like the Tesla Gigafactory, the reason that's special isn't necessarily the size because there are seven of these 14 megafactories that are being built in China, and one of which is actually bigger than Tesla. But the reason it's special is because of what they're trying to achieve there. They're trying to condense the battery supply chain under one roof where they put raw materials for the batteries in one end and cars roll out at the other end. And the success or failure of that model Will, I believe, determine the future of this new age battery sector. And that's uh, certainly something one
2: to watch. I understand, Simon, that the supply of lithium on the planet is quite plentiful. However, how problematic is it for these junior mining companies, many of them in North America, to develop some of the properties, let's say they secured in Clayton Valley, Nevada, as compared to Argentina or Chile? What does the producible supply look like compared to the upcoming demand, and how will this affect prices?
9: Yeah, so supply on the market for the next four years is going to be tight because demand's very, very strong and it's not slowing down. But we do anticipate new supply from, first new supply coming from hard rock spodumene sources. So this will be Galaxy Resources, Neometals, which are now up and running. Um, then companies like Namaska will be coming into the space in 2018 from hard rock. But from a brine perspective, that takes a lot longer to get up and running. So the only next brine we expect to be in production would be Lithium Americas in Argentina. That will be by around 2020. There's still not enough lithium to satisfy the demand so really you've got to look at all the other exploration plays out there for the window of between 2020 and 2025 because the demand from the battery sector isn't going to slow so it's a question of when and what time frame will the new lithium exploration plays react?
2: How careful are you with regard to investing in some of these junior mining companies in the lithium space, and what advice would you give to our audience when considering doing so?
9: So at Benchmark, we don't invest. So we're an independent publishing company, and we don't and can't invest in any companies that we report on. Be impartial and collect data on the industry, certainly prices. But I would say the advice I can give when looking at these companies would be you've got to understand the lithium market and that it's not a commodity. It's not as easy as building a mine and you can produce lithium that's used in a the battery. There are many steps to make battery-grade lithium, which can be quite complex, uh, to then get that battery-grade lithium qualified by battery companies. And that's and it's the end users that dictate this process and that can take a long time. And then you have to ramp up after that. So I think it's not a commodity. It's a speciality mineral, and understanding that complexity is a good start to lithium investing. Well, I'm just
2: going to say that it's potentially very risky then.
9: It is risky because, I mean, lithium is a great industry to invest in. It's a growth industry. A lot is happening on the battery side, but you've got over 100 lithium juniors out there, of which only the top 5% will um, make it. And it's a question of which ones will make it. And that's, that's a case of doing your own research and you know looking at the facts and taking it from there. <laughs>
2: What do you know about recycling these batteries when they expire in 10 or 20 years? What kind of talk is there in the in the industry and what are you seeing and what answers are there?
9: Good question. So recycling is the answer. The question is when and why will people recycle? So we think it's a 10-year horizon before it becomes a serious source of supply or let's say a serious industry. And the two reasons why people would want to recycle is two, if they have to, will governments say you've got to dispose of your lithium-ion batteries, the size of cars, um, that will force people to recycle. And the second is it a reliable and relatively cheap source of raw material, which at the moment it is not. So recycling is the answer, but this isn't an issue, a major issue until I would say post-2020.
2: Let's talk about cobalt. That's a story which has yet to see some big legs, but I think behind lithium, it's, it's a big story, considering the amount of cobalt used in batteries and other industrial arenas. The story, basically, with some of these junior mining companies has been uh, purveying their resources against the supply, basically, which is coming out of the Democratic Republic of Congo, and then uh, that being monopolized by China. That story is basically driving or attempting to drive cobalt stocks what are your thoughts about that?
9: Yeah, cobalt is the most niche of all battery raw materials. So the key ones we would look at would be lithium, graphite, nickel, and cobalt. And of those four, cobalt is the most niche at 100,000 times a year. It makes it even more problematic when 60% of that is coming from the uh, DRC, from the Congo in Africa. There's many problems with the DRC. Artisanal mining is one of them, and part of that artisanal mining is illegal mining. Some children are used to extract cobalt, but it's a very, very small portion of this artisanal mining sector, and it's kind of stigmatized cobalt, really. But I think the real story in cobalt is that it's tied to copper and nickel mining, and with the fortunes of those industries, they've been improving recently, but they've not been very good the last two years. But the cobalt industry is going the opposite direction because of batteries, it's going upwards. And there's going to be a crunch point at some time. It's that crunch point that people are waiting for where cobalt's price starting to rise. And then if you look at the price of cobalt metal on the LME, well, the last 12 months it's gone up 60%. But then historically, it's been quite low for a long time as well. So the question is, is it the start of a cobalt price spike? Is it just a price correction on what were historically low cobalt prices? All these questions are what people are going to be answering hopefully in the next two to three months. Do we have
2: enough... Storage capacity for all the sources of energy coming online now. I'm talking about solar, wind, of course, everything related to what we've been discussing with regard to lithium storage. Is that in place yet? Will it become in place fast enough or will we see a a surge in companies jumping to produce these large and small energy storage facilities?
9: Yeah, that's a good question. So to answer it, no, there's not enough storage capacity um, at all at the moment. And we're just seeing the start of the growth in the lithium-ion battery industry. Last year, for us, that was 70 gigawatt hours of production. And we think from a capacity of about 120 gigawatt hours. So there isn't enough, even if the battery industry is running at capacity, there's nowhere near enough to store the solar and the wind um, that's being produced. But what we are seeing is the start of significant projects from utility storage in places like Hawaii and in California, Uh, where lithium-ion batteries are being deployed in big shipping crater-sized containers and being used to store solar over there. So, the industry is starting to see some signs of life for utility, but really for us, that's going to be more interesting post-2020 when you'll have an abundance of low-cost lithium-ion batteries on the market. At present, the lithium-ion battery industry isn't there and therefore, We're not quite seeing the knock-on effect yet into utility energy companies.
2: Much like computer storage, data storage became smaller over the decades. Do we see something like that in line for energy storage as well?
9: Well, in electric vehicles, no. But in utility storage, it's a very interesting market. It's complex. There are many levels to it. there's, There's a lot of politics involved in it. So it's a far riskier business. It's a far greater opportunity in the long term than electric vehicles. Uh, of course, these are container-sized batteries of 100 megawatts to 300, whereas a car is 80 to 100 kilowatt-hours in size. So it's an order of magnitude bigger. Um, it's fraught with complexities, especially in North America. So only time will tell, and, and we believe post-2020 we'll start seeing some signs.
2: Let's talk about graphite. Several years ago we saw a bubble, perhaps a bubble that was never really sustainable. Should we be looking at graphite stocks now, or should we wait?
9: I think the graphite stocks you should look at are the ones which are going to be value adding into lots of downstream materials. We saw a bubble in 2011 for a number of reasons. One was supply was bought off stream after the global economic crash. Then it rebounded back much, much quicker than anticipated. The emergence of the battery anode industry, spherical graphite, happened at the same time and it caused a supply squeeze, which caused the price to rocket two and a half, three times. Um... I think the future of graphite for new companies has to be in value-added, has to be in battery anode materials. So the ones that, okay, they own a good resource, that's always a positive, but they have to have the business plan and the know-how to make that spherical graphite material, which is used in batteries, um, which then gets qualified by the battery industry. Any companies that can tick those downstream value-added boxes will have a future and will always be a promising investment prospect. Anyone that just wants to do a traditional mining game for graphite will always have to compete with China on raw material costs, and China's the biggest producer of graphite. We foresee that for at least the next 10 years. Nothing really is going to change there, so you've got to compete on quality, and that's really the way I kind of see the future of the industry.
2: Would you say that with regard to lithium, cobalt, and, of course, graphite, is North America always going to be competing with China?
9: I think so. Certainly, is a big buyer. Um, maybe as a producer, it's slightly different, because, for example, with lithium, China. Buys, it imports nearly all of its lithium. So graphite has the fortune of being able to produce it there, and it's trying to now dominate the battery-grade graphite sector mm-hmm. as well. Um, but as a buyer, you've got the from the battery industry, really it's a it's a China versus U.S. thing at the moment. When we look at our battery mega-factories that we track at Benchmark, um, 14 in total, two of which are in the U.S., seven of which are in China, and the rest are shared between Japan, Korea, and uh, Europe. So really these are our demand hubs going forward and for sure it's turning into a US versus China story for batteries and also for electric vehicles.
2: Speaking of Japan, Korea, That part of the world, and let's talk about Australia for a minute, rare earth, rare metals, some of the things we've discussed. How, if at all, is mining turning around in that area and with regard to offtake, do you see Australia lifting itself up again, much like Canada is beginning to do?
9: We've certainly seen positive signs in the lithium space for Australia. You've seen a lot of hard rock suburbine projects gaining ground and making offtakes with China. Uh, But I think the problem with Australian mining as a whole, they were completely tied to the fortunes of the Chinese, and, you know, they tend to go up and down with their Chinese economy. And so that's something that I think a lot of Australian mining companies are looking to diversify from. And certainly with lithium, well lithium is the opposite, they're still very much tied to China. If Australia's mining industry as a whole is going to have kind of an upturn or better fortunes like Canada's experiencing, then really they've got to either wait for the Chinese economy to start improving or they've got to diversify.
2: Simon, let's take a look at the future of lithium prices. What do you see in the short term and long term?
9: So in the short term and long term, the next four years, we believe the lithium price will remain high. We get asked a lot of questions on whether the price of lithium hydroxide and lithium carbonate will start falling or crash from the highs that we've seen in the last 18 months. Because of the demand from the battery sector, it's our belief that prices might taper out a bit, but they're still going to remain high. And actually, we've got them rising throughout this coming year, and we've only got a slight tapering off of carbonate prices by the end of 2020, because that's something we track at Benchmark Mineral Intelligence every month. It's quite interesting to see that we won't expect a lithium price crash anytime soon.
2: Simon, it's been a great pleasure having this conversation with you today. I look forward to revisiting with you in a few months. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program.
9: Happy to help, Ellis, and it's great talking to you. I've been speaking with
2: Simon Moores of Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. Learn more about Benchmark on their website, benchmarkminerals.com, and listen to this segment again on our website,
1: ellismartinreport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.
0: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com.